Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I'm joined today by senior tech owned reporter on the early stage fintech and edtech beat. It is Natasha Mascarenas. Natasha, hello. Hi, how are you? I am doing good. A little stressed, but we'll get to that in a minute. We also have Marianne Azevedo, senior tech owned reporter focused on all things fintech. Marianne, how are you? I am so excited to see you both next week. That's how I am. I can't wait to work out one more time before you do see me, so I look reasonably good. Uh, <laughs> but why are we all hanging out? Well, it is disrupt time, and we are not at all nervous about this enormous event. Whoop. Not at all. <laughs> I, I think one thing that is not clear outside of an organization of any type, really, is how long conference prep is as a thing. It's like a whole season of the year, and then suddenly it's coming here, and Marianne, Natasha, and I are like prepping, and it's absolutely a lot just to hold on to in your head, frankly. Yeah, it's like, I'm super excited, but also just, you know, so much going on, which like for everyone listening, if you haven't already, try and get your booster before and flu shots. I'm like getting injected later today and that's that's happening. So let's hope the lowered immune system from stress doesn't make the side effects worse. (laughs) I mean, I'm just planning on getting sick. There's no way (laughs) the amount of stress and probably people I'm going to see is not going to end up with me getting at least some snivels. But I am boosted. I have my flu vaccine. So I'm hoping to come home with nothing more than a cold. Yes. Let's see how that goes. Okay. So quite a lot to get through this morning. Um, We have deals of the week from Getaway and I believe Picasso the Muse and Very God Boss. Then we're talking about Brex, Noom, and the impact of CFOs. We're going to talk about some global VC funding numbers from Q3. And then there's a little bit on carried interest, which is a very interesting venture capital term that Natasha is going to bring to life to us with some neat new examples. But first, uh, we just wanted to touch just for a little second on what's going on in Iran. Yeah. I mean, if if you've been watching it peripherally, this is kind of an excuse to pause the pod and go read about it because There has been a revolution with women on the forefront in Iran that I think is really important to be paying attention to. Dozens of people have died, and it's really around the death and loss of women due to not following the hijab policies and mandates, more to say. And I I can't speak as eloquently, I think, as the writers on the front lines. So I will just throw people to a piece that I think summed up the emotion of it in The Atlantic called The Bonfire of Headscarves. It is a must read. And I think it's just important for us to make sure we stay in tune with what's happening there. Yeah. And how does this fit into equity? What's the the tech angle? Well, I mean, when we think about protests, we think about social media, we think about people coming together, and we think about repression. And in Iran, we have seen disruptions to internet service, and essentially this becoming another catalyst for an authoritarian regime to clamp down on free expression and so forth. I mean, when we think about the the free speech conversation in America, it comes down to, you know, can corporations set policies for the platforms they control? That's a very different conversation than we're seeing play out in other parts of the world. So it's it's good to keep the context in mind. And uh, I think people should be allowed to wear what they'd like. Yeah. Personally. 100%. 100%. It's one of those times where I like, I want to say my hearts are with people, but right now the most useful thing I think is to use our platforms to just retweet and talk about it. So that's how yep. I think we wanted to start the show just to address it. And now let's jump into startups. Yeah. And we're going to kick off with uh, Getaway, but not the other Getaway, which we'll get into in just a second. And then a company called Picasso, (laughs) not Picasso, but Picasso. And I I want to know why these two companies are are grouped. Yeah. Well, so the news is really around Getaway. And I actually jumped on Marianne's beat a little here because it's all about startups that are trying to make the idea of like a luxury vacation home more accessible to the general person through a co-ownership model. 
And so Getaway, it raised $5.9 million this week from Cowboy Ventures, XYC, and Knight Ventures, as well as $1.5 million in debt financing. And as I joked with the co-founders, they want to do it all. They want to help consumers own fractions of luxury homes in areas that they love. So not the suburbs of New Jersey, but maybe Napa. Um, and I, I said that too. I was like, okay, so not a townhouse in New Jersey. But um, at the same time, not just own it, but also be able to go there and be able to enjoy the rental, which I don't know, Marion, you've been covering this world. Having both seems like it's not too much of a thing yet. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of mixed feelings about this. When Picasso's news first came out, it was it was really interesting. I hadn't at that time heard of this model. I've since seen a number of startups doing a similar thing. The thing about Picasso, first of all, Spencer Raskoff, who co-founded Zillow, also co-founded this company, um, and another former Zillow executive as well uh, joined in. So they do have experience in real estate, clearly. One sort of, I guess, beef I have with it, I do feel like it's very much for the wealthy, people who are already wealthy. Like, you know, these these are luxury homes, you know, so that's great. It gives these rich people another way to go on vacation, it, right? Yeah, it's like that classic thing, which Alex, I feel like you'll love is like VCs backing startups that they agree with. And I, I for one, I'm really excited by Getaway. So it's not shade to them necessarily, but I see why it's VC backed, right? Like, I don't think it's hard yeah. for people to be sold on a vision of luxury real estate if you are a VC. Well, <laughs> we have to keep in mind that most people don't own a house, yes. right? Let alone this need to included. have a second. <laughs> yeah. Natasha is homeless. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, she lives in a small trash can no. and she is a crouch. <laughs> I, oh, that's Sesame Street. Sorry. <laughs> I, I I have a beautifully rented apartment and and owning is nowhere even close to something I'll probably do before I'm 30, if then. And I'm still privileged and lucky to be clear. <laughs> but Marianne, we can we can now take her out back and throw her in the lake, right? Well, you guys yeah. yeah. <laughs> you guys you guys own homes. Is luxury ownership? a thing that you're dreaming of one day when you see this picture, you're like, huh, maybe I'll think about it. To, to me, there's an inherent tension between the idea of having a second home, having a nice second home and sharing it. And so when I think about Getaway and Picasso from a high level, to me, they almost seem like bougie, micro Airbnbs with an investing twist. Because if you're still sharing a home, it's still going to be a place where you can't leave your socks, right? Yeah. But in a second house, you can. And so it's not quite the same thing. And yet it's not cheap. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been compared to like timeshares, which is a very older model that people used to share vacation homes. Um, they, there are some distinctions the companies claim that I won't get into right now. But yeah, I mean, this concept of, of sharing co-ownership is basically they were saying is like, there are people who have vacation homes, yet they use them like two weeks a year. So, you know, why not? Why not just share in the cost, share in the stays and just, you know, spread the wealth type thing. So I mean, I guess I can see where this would be appealing to the wealthy. And I and from what I understand, Picasso is actually, they, they're saying that they're doing really well, like revenues growing, things like that. So I mean, Getaway, I know Getaway has some differences, right, Natasha? I think they're focused more on like trying to make it a little bit more accessible. It is. And that is like, I think a good disclaimer and difference to make. I mean, one, the platform is launching soon. It's going to debut its first investment offering pending SEC approval. But with that in mind, if everything goes okay, like Users can invest in a getaway property starting at 1000 per share, while Picasso can cost someone anywhere from 400000 to $3 million to purchase one-eighth of a property. And I think that difference, I, I still don't know if like I'm in a place or, and I'm making it about me, but whatever, uh, to, to throw 1000 into a property right now for fun. 
But to me, that's a huge difference. And if they actually execute on that, that's not just for the wealthy. Right. It's a little bit more. It's a little broader of a, of a user base, I think. Significantly more accessible. Significantly. D- did you just say three million for one eighth of a property? Yeah. So do you, yeah. do you know how much house you get for $24 million? <laughs> you get much house. <laughs> Yeah, you Huge. get many a house. That's so true. <laughs> I mean, even in San Francisco, you can buy three in a row. Like, I mean, what $24 million house is on the platform? You know what? Yeah, maybe I'll double check that because I, I did get that stat from Picasso. I'm sorry. I got that stat from Getaway. Picasso did confirm that like users can pay like around 30% of a house's total purchase price in order to get access. I mean, long story short, I'm kind of impressed by a seed stage startup taking on one of the fastest unicorns to ever be born. As Marianne has covered with Picasso, it just had this insane launch and growth. So like, I mean, hair for that, for sure. Definitely. I, I want to say one more thing. We, we joke about um, VCs building stuff for, for rich people or funding companies that are building stuff for rich people. But there is a pretty large, super wealthy class in the United States. So like, it is a market. <laughs> like, you know, we, we giggle, but there is a legitimate demand for this sort of thing. Yeah, um, definitely. And if you don't believe me, just go in Zillow and sort by uh, prices highest to lowest, not the way you usually do it, which is lowest <laughs> to highest. And then you'll see what I mean. <laughs> Rich people exist. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, breaking news on equity. Well, it's a whole thing. Uh, okay, let's let's move on to the next deal, uh, which is my deal of the week, which I'm quite excited about. So a company called The Muse has bought a company called Fairy God Boss. And a couple things. One, we don't like the name Fairy God Boss, but the overall transaction is interesting. So essentially, The Muse is buying... Fairy God Boss, which is doing about $10 million a year in revenue. Okay, it's a startup deal. Why do we care? Well, it's about bringing together companies that are targeting hiring of particular demographics. So Fairy God Boss, Marianne, um, helps women and working moms get jobs. And it seems that that company did a good job with that, found a niche, but didn't actually reach kind of IPO scale. And so the Muse, with some external capital, is going to roll up some of these more niche players into a a more generalized kind of holding company, if you will. And I think it's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Um, I think it's smart. And and we've, we've been talking about M&A a lot. It feels like on the show lately. But um, it really, in this case, at least to me, makes makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's just so many, like I think in the story that uh, Becca wrote, right, that she was saying that some companies or businesses are overwhelmed because there's like dozens of options, all these different types of niche recruiting firms out there. And they're like, well, we can't hire all of them. So, you know, let's, why not make it easier to get customers like join forces with another company, have a stronger offering and make more money as one larger company than two smaller ones. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've heard from people for the last couple of years is what we used to call SaaS fatigue, that they didn't want to buy another service, another product. And so if the Muse can bring together uh, a way to target six, seven, 12, 15 different more niche demographics, and you can pay them once and have access to all the different services, you can go out and find working moms, um, underrepresented groups and so forth. Cool. You know? Um, and It's a great idea. Yeah. I I just want to say one thing. Disclose the price. Tell us what you paid. No, I it's, wish. It's like if your friend buys a car, you're like, okay, how much was it? They were like, I'm not going to tell you. You just presume they got screwed on the deal. So like, you know, tell us. It would be particularly helpful in a place like in an environment like this, because I feel like there's obviously so many vertically focused recruitment platforms that like, I'm sure either way, honestly, just seeing a number would make a difference. Um, Absolutely. I, I have like two perspectives. One is like, I'm like, okay, I think HR tech specifically is like ripe for consolidation because it just seems like incentives are aligned for recruitment platforms to have the pools together. But I'm also like, okay, we saw this happen in like healthcare, uh, like digital health verticals, for example, it makes sense for all of them to like join forces. So like a maven can offer all of these services to an end user. 
So it's a little bit of like predictability, but HR tech doing more of this is particularly exciting. There's also a fintech angle here for Marianne, because one thing we've seen in the neo-banking world, Marianne, just to pick one thing, is people targeting specific demographics. There's neobanks right. for Gen Z. There's neobanks for um, for national students who need access to a particular type of banking here in the US, whatever. And I've always been very curious, are those two niche of a TAM to scale? And so I'm curious if this Muse Fairy Godboss deal uh, presages, essentially, something similar in fintech. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely so many neobanks that have emerged in the past couple of years targeting very, very specific demographics. And and actually, one of my goals one day is to do a story looking kind of just looking at a bunch of them and seeing how they're doing, because I'm very, very curious as to how they fared over the past year or so um, in this downturn. Uh, comp person actually brought up one of your stories with me recently, Alex, about what was your headline this week about neobanks? The Profit divide running through neobanks? Yes, exactly. Like that. The moment is coming for neobanks, all to say, kind of like, I feel like we're seeing a lot of these like inflection moments happening. Yeah. I mean, when the venture capital market changes, a lot of companies have to figure out their own destiny. And that may be MA, maybe holding up for an IPO. But at, at a minimum, as um, Becca Skutek wrote the other day, Q4 is not going to be boring. We just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this this actually all is in line with uh, my newsletter that I published Sunday, where um, I highlight an interview I had with Mark Goldberg, who's the fintech lead at Index Ventures. And he actually addressed this very topic. Um, and one of his predictions for the next quarter or this quarter's next quarter. No, this quarter. We're in the fourth quarter. Jeez. Okay. This is Q4. Yeah. Yeah. Please keep that in. Yeah. Please keep that in because that's how I feel too. I'm like, I mean, I don't cut it I, out. I, I forgot that we are actually in the fourth quarter. But yeah, he's talking about fourth quarter over the next six months. He's really predicting that we're going to see a lot of MA, a lot of consolidation in fintech. And he raised the point that I actually brought up earlier that there's just, there's so many fintech players doing extremely similar things. And it's just getting to a point, you know, in this challenging environment where it just makes more sense to team up and, you know, go after the same customers and continue to compete. So that's, that's his theory. And, and actually, you know, the whole interview was super interesting. Um, the headline uh, was based off one of his quotes, and I thought it was absolutely perfect analogy of what we experienced in the startup and venture world. Last year was the party, this year is the hangover damn, that's so accurate. <laughs> it was one of those interviews I read and I was like, ah, oh, this is like, I'm, I feel like I'm roasting VCs more than I usually do this week. But like, <laughs> I feel like so often VCs say things and it just looks like words. And I think when I read this interview you had with Mark Goldberg, it looked like like a conversation. And right. I think that also goes to a testament to your interview questions, Marianne. So this is a shout out to your newsletter because I think it uh, does such thanks. a good job on a weekly basis and the effort really shows. And I, I absolutely I, we'll, we'll link it obviously but I mean yeah it's one of those interviews where I was like what the heck he's he's saying things he's naming companies by name he's not using generalizations I mean I know it's really show. refreshing it's refreshing I mean it's like a reporter's dream yeah. when, when an, <laughs> an interview subject actually says what's on their mind without hedging or trying to you know sound like a press release you know and I thanked him for that believe me no, no, I, I, I loved it. I was prepping for the show today, so I reread the interview, Marianne, and I want to grab a specific paragraph because I've been thinking so much about the Q3 venture capital market, and we'll get into that later on. But Mark said, this year, I'm actually spending a huge amount of time looking at early stage consumer finance, which I think is probably the most, maybe that or crypto, unloved category or subcategory of fintech today. Yeah. And so in that one sentence, we learned so much about the, the rank of where there's interest in investing in the fintech world. And to see consumer fintech down there with crypto, wow, that <laughs> really tells us that maybe B2C in general yeah. is just suffering as consumers suffer. 
Yeah. So shout out to Mark for being contrarian, but like uh, a fascinating data point that really stood out to me while I was reading this. Is, Is he saying that crypto is not loved? Yeah. Right. Early stage consumer finance is probably the most unloved category or subcategory, maybe that or crypto, huh. if I rearrange his words a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my God. That's so interesting. Yeah. That, I mean, hot take. Yeah, he's, he's really bullish on consumer fintech. And that's I think that's one of the areas he's really looking for deals currently. I, I love it. Uh, and Index has a relatively large capital pool, Marianne, but do you know how big their most recent fund is? I forget the number. I feel like it was $3 billion, but I... I could be wrong. <laughs> okay. I, I was thinking like 800 million. Um, I was just naturally off by a factor of three. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it was about 3 billion. Yeah. 3 billion. Well, speaking of billion dollar somethings, Brex had news this week, Marianne. <laughs> <laughs> Great segue. Um, yeah. Brex, Brex is a fintech startup, right? That started out with a corporate card offering for startups and wanting to be like all financial things for startups. And that's kind of how it it rose to fame, so to speak, in the startup world. It made headlines this summer when it kind of abruptly announced it would no longer serve SMBs or uh, non-professionally funded startups. Yeah, there's some nuance there, according to the founders. Anyway, I think they realized that that move wasn't handled the best way. Brex also, by the way, to your segue point, Natasha, was valued at $12.3 billion this year. So that's really relevant because it just laid off 11% of its staff, which amounted to about 136 people. This proves that even decacorns are not immune to the downturn. But it, it seems to me, Marianne, I wanted to run this past you because when I was reading this bit of news, my impression was the move away from the non-venture-backed SMB category essentially led to them having staff they weren't using. And so these cuts are, are more tied to that than a business issue? Yeah, that's that's kind of what they're saying. They're, they're, ah. they're framing this as a restructuring, like, okay, we're no longer serving this particular customer base. So certain employees that we had that were very focused on understanding and, and you know, working with this customer base were just not necessarily needed anymore. And they they said they tried to repurpose roles and things like that, but just ultimately had to let some people go, which I mean, I, I can see that. Yeah. It just all feels a little bit unfortunate considering, you know, where, where Brex came from and where it started. The company is says it's very much leaning still into its Empower offering, which is focused on enterprise customers. In fact, they, um, they recently hired a new chief revenue officer from SAP Concur, trying to, to really go <laughs> after <laughs> enterprise. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, you know, their CRO, Sam Blonde, left to join Founders Fund recently. And also um, their CFO, and actually had really only been CFO for maybe like 10 months or so, he's leaving to join Rippling as uh, as a CFO. So the CFO, who was CFO before Adam, is now COO and CFO for Brex. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so here's the question. What does all this CFO shuffling tell us about potential exits for these companies? That's that's what I'm stuck on here. Yeah, I mean, I just want to also make one other point before I forget this. Rippling also recently entered the spend management space. So they are now going after the same category that Brex is. So that makes all this just a little bit more interesting because Adam is technically going to work for a competitor. But anyway, to back to the CFO point. Uh, okay, so actually, no, I forget the CFO point. That's that's <laughs> tertiary compared to what I now want to rant about, which is everyone wants to be a bank. We've been writing about this. Uh, we wrote about this at Crunchbase News. We've been writing about this at, at TechCrunch. Uh, essentially, if you have access to consumers, people were throwing on 
checking accounts, the ability to buy stocks, the ability to buy crypto, because it was essentially a free revenue lever, given that you could kind of staple that stuff onto your your platform with external third-party products like Alpaca or whatever. Okay, fair enough. Now it seems that everyone's adding corporate spend management to their product mix if they have business customers of any size. A healthy market or does that kind of dilute the the value of... Yeah. Two other examples. Trip Actions, which was focused on travel, entered the general corporate spend market. And that company, by the way, actually raised a bunch of money this week, which Natasha covered. Uh, Roe also entered the space recently. So, I mean, Wait. I don't know. It's like so many, so many companies are, are in it. It's getting more and more crowded. Each one of them claim they're, they're targeting different, you know, types of companies. I, I don't know what to think anymore. Roe, the consumer health tech company or a different Roe? Yeah. R-H-O. Oh, oh. Oh, not R-O. Fintech Roe. Okay, startups, listen, we love you. But like the fact that today when I was prepping, there were two different getaways, both focused on the vacation space. And the fact that Roe and Roe have the exact same pronunciation, yet do entirely different things. More letters, more differentiation. Language is broad. Use it. (laughs) Anyway, I feel like we digress. So I I don't know. Natasha, you were going to say something and I interrupted. No, I mean, I'm writing a story that'll go out on Saturday, I think, uh, about the idea of like CFO shuffles. I mean, it's obviously super dramatic. I'll just say it that like, the CFO left for a competitor in Brex's situation. We saw another CFO leave Noom. With Brex, I feel like in a way it's not as worrisome because Brex preempted it like earlier this year by saying we're not IPOing anytime soon. I think Henrique said that to CNBC. Noom, however, was targeting an IPO this year. And then they just lost their CFO. They've had layoffs three times, I think. And so I feel like when a CFO leaves, the same way when a CFO joins, it's like, okay, this company's like taking its finances seriously. It's reached maturity. It's just a helpful signal. So I'm I'm really glad you got that detail in. And I think it's something we should track, I don't know, more of when we hear about layoffs is like, which executive suite is actually being impacted? Because it tells you a lot about priorities. Yeah, absolutely. And Natasha, we saw OpenSea lose their CFO. After less than a year. Was that this week? Yeah, it was like a few days I ago. Think so. Again, after less than a year of joining. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, have, you okay, look, when a startup hires a CFO, we know what that means. Natasha's right. They are, they're professionalizing their finances. They're getting their gap numbers in place. They're putting the systems in place so that way they can later go public. Now, a CFO being hired does not mean that's going to happen soon. It could be a year or two away, but we know the path they're on. They can see the end of the tunnel and need someone to drive them there. If you hire a CFO and then your market tanks, as happened to OpenSea, sorry to say, uh, not to be rude, but we've all seen what happened to NFTs, and then your CFO leaves, I think we can also read that signal the other way, which is that an IPO is not really the next thing the company is going to do. Yeah. I mean, in Brex's case, they do still have a CFO and, and it was a CFO who was there before the one who left Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like this perfect week of like different scenarios playing out in real time. So true. So like for our journalist hearts, we're like able to look at all the scenarios. And yeah, I I think it's a a good point, Alex, that like it doesn't mean when you hire a CFO, it's immediately IPO on the way. So like obviously a lot of hedging, but like it's something to track, something to notice. Oh, yeah. It's something that we track like very whenever a company hires a CFO, I'm like, okay, when are they going to call me up and say, hey, do you want to talk to our CEO off the record? You should talk to them this week because starting next week, we're not going to be able to talk. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, there's a private IPO filing oh, coming. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. You haven't like, had it's one just, of those conversations in a while, though. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've had none that I'm allowed to talk about because they were all off the Good record. Answer. And I believe the podcast is on the record. Uh, I've been told that. Uh, shall we move along? Yes. Let's yeah. talk about funding and numbers. I'm excited. Yeah. So we are in the 
Q4 period, which means we are now doing Q3 venture capital analysis. And every quarter for the last five years, I have sat down on the podcast and vomited 80 billion numbers onto people. And I don't think they've ever landed. So I'm going to try to be succinct this time and, and terse and not put everyone under a barrage of numbers, but there will be some. And the picture that's emerging, as far as I can tell, is that the, the United States venture capital market is holding up medium well in this downturn. It appears that the rest of the world is taking a bit of a harder blow based on the data I've seen thus far, and that individual sectors that were once incredibly hot are losing a little bit of their luster. So to put this into perspective, the seed and angel market, according to I think it was crunch-based data in the third quarter of this year, was worth about 7.4 billion. It was 7.9 billion last Q3. So a decline, but not a very serious one. We saw a bit of a larger decline in the early stage market, and we did, of course, see a relatively sharp come down in the late stage market. But as I'm actually writing about it today, a lot of that's predicated on crossover funds and other non-traditionals leaving the venture market. So venture capital holding up, but there's less tourist-ish participation on the late stage side of things. Um, but when we niche down into like other countries, we do see a bit more damage. And so India, for example, is seeing you know a, a sharper decline in capital raise. So uh, Indian startups raised $3 billion in Q3, and that was down 57% from Q2. And then here's the crazy thing, Natasha, 80% down from a year ago. That is I mean, like, that's a whew, shocking decline. Massive. I mean, brutal. And obviously, like India's most valuable startup, we talked about it so much in the show in 2021, Baiju's postponed its plans to file to go public this year. That makes entire sense. Yeah. When I think about this, you guys tell me if this is a leap. U.S. is like probably the most mature venture market in the world right now. Yeah. Right? Yes. It has to be. Okay. Thank you. Just confirming. With that being true, we're, of, of course, we're seeing people choose to focus kind of what's within arm's reach and a hop, skip, and a jump away versus going global. Not saying 80% of it at all predictable. Just saying like, I think it's all tracking as expected in a way. And I wonder if India is going to start. I mean, if you look at YC, it's India investment has dropped a little bit. So like maybe it's like just starting to now like turn inwards a little bit. And I'm curious if there's an opportunity there. If there's a silver lining. Well, you know, Mary, I, I wonder if this is just when market size and the hype that that brings is met with the reality of a particular market. So India, just to pick an example, sticking with that one, enormous market, high smartphone penetration, uh, rising GDP, a, a nation on the make in a large degree economically. And so if you're building companies, why wouldn't you go target that market? However, in the near term, it appears that there's going to be some some chop. And also the government has some part to play in what's going on. And you know, maybe this is, back to your earlier point, kind of the result of the previous party. Yeah. I mean, I've, it's not surprising that these other regions are seeing bigger declines than we are in the U.S. I think the extent of the declines is surprising. It does make me a little sad, to be honest with you, because, you know, I really like seeing all these other regions raking in the venture dollars, right, over you know, 2021 and seeing places like Africa, India, Latam, like really raising, you know, startups, they're raising lots of money. I hope this is temporary. You know, we'll have to see how this all plays out. I think like my optimistic view is like that boom time needed to happen. So these places had some activation energy and like now is kind of the test to see what can be done with that. So if you're a startup that didn't overspend because you came from a market that doesn't traditionally have a lot of access to venture capital, maybe there's some hope for you now to be like, okay, like, let's see what we're working with. I don't know. It's kind of like it needed, it needed the spotlight. Now that the spotlight, I think about EdTech like this too. Now that spotlight's gone, like, let's see what happens. Like, this is your time yeah. to prove it. Yeah. yeah. 
Good point. Uh, one last data point before we move on to all things carried interest, which is actually going to be fascinating because it's teaching me new things about startup models, or well, venture capital models, I should say. Uh, but Marianne Fintech, uh, the beat that you have had your eyes on for- A couple of years now. Yeah. <laughs> We're seeing some changes. So the overall fintech uh, venture capital pace, if you will, is slowing down. And we're also seeing an important change because if aggregate venture is slowing, you would expect that the biggest categories would also decline. So seeing fintech numbers come down a little bit, not a huge shock, but I did some math. And according to the latest data that I've seen, we're not seeing one in $5 in venture go to fintech startups. That was 20%. We're seeing about 17% now in the last quarter. So closer to one in six. Mm-hmm. And I can't decide if that's a very important thing or that's an absolute not very important thing. And I'm overlooking at the numbers trying to find facts. Um, I mean, honestly, like, I feel like I can see this just in terms of the number and types of pitches I've been getting over the past, you know, few months. But I, I do think it's very notable that the percentage of venture money going to fintech is down, like overall. I mean, like you said, uh, Ventures down, period, but I'm talking relative to other sectors. Mm-hmm. It's down. Uh, I think it's notable. And I feel like there was just a lot of hype around fintech 2020, 2021. I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it deserved some of it, you know, quite honestly, not. And so it's just, it's, I think it's getting to the point where investors are like, okay, all right, you know. And, and Mark even said this in, in the interview, and I don't remember his exact quote, but like, he was like, it's so nice to not have like just 48 hours to yeah. decide if I'm going to invest in a company. And I and I think that that's very reflective of what we're seeing in uh, fintech venture dollars raised because investors are not, they don't have FOMO like they used to. They're not freaking out, oh, we got to get into this next round. And I think that's probably a good thing overall. But I mean, you know, for fintech as a sector, you know, it's just kind of coming down a little bit more to reality, I think. Yeah. It's 90-day fiancé, not 48 hours fiancé. <laughs> more stable place to be, for sure. For sure. All right. So one thing that fintech did was put all of venture interest on its back to carry it. And that means that we should talk about carried interest. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. So, I mean, this this is a looser section, but it's kind of inspired by uh, a conversation I was having with Airtable's CEO and co-founder, Howie Liu, yesterday. And we were just talking vaguely about like what's going to happen due to the downturn long term and kind of got to this conversation of like, okay, what will structurally change in venture beyond valuations coming down, seed deals becoming take, due diligence taking longer. And I appreciated that perspective because we're starting to see VC firms get more creative in how they raise and how they share. So to, to pull an Alex, like how annoyed would you guys be if you told someone about Snowflake when it was a seed state startup? And that was it. And then they make become a billionaire and you just kind of get the brownie points. Oh, now I'd be pissed. Really pissed. Livid. I would haunt them. Same. It would be haunting. It would be not okay. And I am happy that we're seeing venture start to introduce some models that share interest with the people that recommend them the deals. So one example from a, a while ago, actually, is like Gumroad's founder, Sahil. He announced a kind of pooled scout fund with Angelus in which like scouts get carry for their both their referred deal and the whole pool of startups within his kind of scout focused investments. We also saw Brickyard giving founders 10% of GP's carried interest in its new $17 million fund. I mean, I kind of really like this idea of like giving people who are supporting you, incentivizing them to kind of keep supporting you and keep showing them better deals financially. There's a lot of goodwill in venture, and I think, sure, that's fine, but only some people benefit from that goodwill. I would be much happier if I just got money versus brownie points. I can't do anything with brownie points. 
Yeah. I mean, I also wrote about Atman Capital yes. last week, a new cross-border VC firm. And, and what it's doing is um, it, it's also giving credit to any of its LPs um, who refer a successful deal to the firm in the form of some carried interest in the firm's profits. Um, one thing I think that might be different about what they're doing compared to, I think, like AngelList is they're they're actually requiring these people to become LPs, you know, they're, they're like saying, you have to become an LP. Yeah. Um, if you want to, to get this, you know, carried interest in this, this perk. Um, so, so anyway, I mean, I, I thought what they're doing is, is kind of different. And I wonder if we're going to see more of it. I mean, Tiger Global, it, it, in a different way, like Tiger Global is giving a discount to some of its LPs if they come on in first close. We're seeing all these different examples of venture investors raising a fund and wanting to find unique ways to get commitments to it. So when I hear kind of mandatory participation, it's like there's many ways to interpret if that's a good or bad thing. It's just it's kind oh, of smart though. Yeah, real and just a and just a quick note to clarify with in Atman Capital's case, he's they're referring to founders who started companies and may still actually be running those companies, but like on the side where like angel investing. And so what Atman's doing is like, okay, instead of angel investing and having all these separate deals going on, you can just become an LP in our firm and, you know, yeah. and invest through our firm. It's less headache for you. You've got this community, as, as they call it, to like, you know, bounce things off with. And so, you know, when you look at it from that perspective, I think it does kind of make sense because I've been seeing a ton of founders go the angel investing route. And um, this is a different alternative, a different way to kind of sort of still be an angel, but like in a more formal structure. To me, there's, there's really two sides of this. One is using carried interest as a way to engender uh, capital into your fund. And then the other is breaking off bits of carried interest as a way to incentivize deal flow. And that's both halves of the venture equation. And so what I think we're seeing here is VCs be willing to sacrifice some of their economics for either a larger capital base on one hand or potentially better deal flow on the other. And that seems smart. That seems pretty reasonable. That's a great it. way to sum it up, Alex. Yeah, let's keep it that way. Also, guys, can I just say, like, we're going to struggle so hard to do this show in 30 minutes on the disrupt stage. I mean, what are we going to do? I don't know. Oh, uh, we're going to get cut off <laughs> yeah. because we have, like, like, there's a countdown clock. The mics are going to get cut. <laughs> yeah, there's a segue right there. I'll grab that one. Uh, disrupt is next week. And uh, we're all very, very excited, very nervous. That's all I talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Same. My, my family's so sick of hearing about it. <laughs> like, we get it. You disrupt things. I- <laughs> <laughs> I'd explain this, but I'm visiting my parents right now. And I was like, well, we're having an event in San Francisco. They're like, why? I'm like, because <laughs> this is what we do. Yeah. Um, anyways, we'll be in San Francisco. I'm flying in tomorrow. Natasha's already there. Marianne arrives sometime soon. It's going to be an absolute blast. And uh, if you are coming Tuesday morning, we are kicking off the show as a, as a three. We'll be on stage doing equity live. It's going to be a mishmash of our Wednesday and Friday shows. It's going to be a real treat. And um, if we're terrible, please clap anyways. <laughs> and if you still need a ticket, don't forget you can use the code equity to save 15%. And also we will give you a fist bump, a high five and a head pat. So <laughs> come on down. Uh, we'll see you there. And uh, it's going to be a great show. And as always, Equity Pod on Twitter. You can follow Marianne, Natasha or myself as well. And we'll see you soon. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporters Natasha Mascarenas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickabet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.